You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to be with you online again here this week, Northway Church. Uh, if you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this week as we continue in our Theology of Suffering series. And as you're turning there, let me just say to all our moms at home, Happy Mother's Day. I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate Mother's Day than just a good old-fashioned message on suffering. And so that's where we're at this week. If you're joining us maybe for the very first time uh, online with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And here's what we've been doing in a Theology of Suffering series. We spent the last couple of weeks just looking at a theological basis or a kind of a theological foundation and framework for why suffering exists and, and our responses into it. And, and what we've seen in this is rather than, what I've tried to do is rather than just offering some sort of, um, some pragmatic therapeutic antidotes to suffering, like here's, here's five ways to avoid pain in your life. Here's seven ways to find prosperity in the midst of your loss. Rather than, than having that angle, what we've tried to do is just simply open the scriptures and grab a theology, a biblical framework for why trials exist, what God is up to, what his purposes are in these trials and and what the Christian response should be towards those trials. And here's what we've kind of seen over the last couple of weeks as we spent our time looking at James chapter one. And that is, there is a certain perception we're to have of trials that when trials come into our lives, not if, but when, and They will come in multiple ways, multiple forms at multiple times. When those trials come, we are not to perceive those trials with an attitude of anger or contempt towards God as if he is some sort of malicious puppeteer who's inflicting this evil upon our life to lead us towards hopelessness and despair. That's not the lens the Christian is to have. Theologically speaking, what we've seen is that we are to have a perspective of joy as an act of faith. And you go, why? Because of two things that we know to be true, what we know to be true about God and what we know to be true about what God is up to in the midst of these trials. What we know to be true about God is that he's good, that his goodness and his holiness, they're like the stars fixed in the sky. There is no variation in God's character. He is always good. And because he is good, he can only give what is good, even if sometimes those gifts are wrapped in harsh packages. But secondly, we also know what he's up to because he's told us that one of the end goals in this trial is to produce a maturity in us, a steadfastness, an endurance in us, that we would be more faithfully anchored and rooted, that we would cling to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in the midst of our trials rather than trying to assume control and cling to our own sufficiency. Part of trials is to wean us off of us so that we can get more of God. And in the meantime, when we're confused and we're frustrated and we don't know why this thing is here, we don't know where this is gonna go, in the meantime, we can approach God for his wisdom. We can choose to sit humbly under his counsel to learn what it is God wants to teach us. Rather than putting God in the student's chair and us in the teacher chair, we reverse those roles. We sit humbly under his counsel and we say, Lord, what do you wanna show me? I'm listening. And then as we do so, we begin to receive his word. We receive the transforming power of the Holy Spirit who wants to reshape our hearts and our minds 
so that we will, we will see much more of Jesus in this thing and that we will cling to him and that we will literally, we'll walk away from this trial a different person than how we came into it. And even as we saw last week, that we would even walk away taking the comfort that we have received in our pain and be able to go give it away to others who are walking in their pain. And so that is one of the frameworks that we've been working with here in this theology of suffering. But listen, if you're like me, then the longer this trial goes on, what you begin to sense as life continues to press in with its hardships is you inevitably begin asking the question, when is this gonna end? I mean, even those with the strongest of faiths will wonder, is there another day coming when this reality won't be what we're experiencing? When will this end? I, I can tell you, even as a pastor for the last 20 years, I have gotten to officiate my fair share of funerals. And I'll tell you that based upon the context that I've been in, the churches that I've worked for, I've not done a lot of funerals that are with older 80, 90-year-olds who live godly lives, who passed away of natural causes, and we gather to celebrate in remembrance of them because of the youthfulness of many of the contexts I've been in, almost all of the funerals that I've done have been absolutely traumatic. I mean, I have, I've buried and done the funeral of a high school student who was murdered by a gang at a party. I have done the funeral of suicides. I have buried infant children who died at such a young age. I helped officiate the funeral of a man who was killed in a plane crash, done cancer and brain tumors, and had even a young child who died in a dentist chair. I mean, the weight that was in those rooms was almost unbearable. The, the kind of horrific pain that is in the culture and in the world around us, and some of you have walked through, is almost unbearable. And as I've sat in those rooms and felt that pain, and even as I mentioned before, walked through the funerals of my own family members, burying my own parents and my wife's parents who've died tragically, in every one of those contexts, as awful as those realities are and as painful as they are, there is a beacon within me and there is a beacon within the people in those rooms that is pinging for some future day when these deaths will be no more, when these hardships will be no more. And if you're like me in those situations, the one thing that you've got to have in the midst of those realities is hope. And so that's what I want us to see today. Here in Romans chapter eight, I'm gonna show you a short little text. And in this text, there are no instructions. There are no commands, not a single command in this text. There's no five practical takeaways. All that you're gonna see is hope. Because as you've heard it said before, the average human can go about 40 days without food, about three, four days without water, about four minutes maybe without air, but we can't go a single moment without hope. And so we're gonna see this in Romans chapter eight. As you're looking there, in the middle of Romans eight, what Paul has been talking about, he's talking about the security that a believer has in Jesus Christ. This is an issue we're gonna look at in more detail next week. But Paul is talking about the security that a believer has and what it is that validates the fact that we are God's and he can never lose us. In verses nine through 13, one of the evidences that proves we're God's, Paul says, 
is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The simple fact that the Spirit of God resides within us is evidence that we are His. And then you'll see in verses 14 through 16, a second evidence that validates that we are God's and He cannot lose us is that we, by the Spirit's adopting power, are sons and daughters of God. We are children of God who've been adopted into His family. And with Him as our Heavenly Father and us as His children, He cannot lose His children. But what he then says in verse 17 and following is where we're gonna find ourselves this week. In verse 17, notice Paul says, if you are children, then you are heirs. You ask yourself, what is an heir? An heir is simply a child whose father says to them, everything that I have is yours. Now you have partial access to it right now, but one day you will receive the fullness of my estate. It's yours. You're a child who is inheriting the estate of the father. To my children, I have five daughters. It's me saying to them, sweethearts, one day you are, gonna, you are going to inherit everything that is mine, which right now is a few hundred dollars in my checking account, a ginormous family van that's gonna be awesome, and a mortgage payment that you can pay off for the next 30 years. So have fun with that. Uh, don't spend it all at once, but that is my glorious pastoral estate and you can divide it five ways when I'm gone. Like that's what it means to be an heir. And Paul is telling us right now that as children of God, we are heirs of our heavenly father. And he specifically says, we are co-heirs with Christ. Christ is the son of God, us now as adopted sons and daughters of God. It's as if Christ is our brother and what is true of his inheritance becomes true of ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. But I want you to notice what we are heirs of. Paul could have listed anything in this verse. He could have said we're, we're heirs of streets of gold, of pearled gates, of, of imperishable bodies. He could have gone on and on, but he lists one thing in verse 17 that is most chiefly what it is we inherit, and that is God himself. We inherit God. We are heirs of God. That is the most important thing that a Christian receives in our salvation is not God's stuff, but God. And we, we get to be co-heirs with his glory, his ruling in his kingdom and the eternal presence of the Father that is with us always. That is our hope. That is our inheritance. But it's not just that. Notice also in verse 17, in the meantime, as we wait on that future inheritance in its fullness, there's something presently that we also inherit, that we are co-heirs with Christ as well, that we co-share with Christ. And it's his sufferings. His sufferings is also an inheritance. Some of y'all are like, I don't want that inheritance. Take me back to the streets of gold. Take me back to the pearly gates. I don't want the sufferings. And yes and amen, we don't want that. But we understand here, before there comes a crown, there comes a cross. And it is appointed that we must walk through trials in this life before we receive the fullness of the inheritance of God himself that awaits us. But what we have in this text though, is the fact that there is a hope in the midst of these sufferings that allows us to keep persevering, to keep enduring because of what is still to come. And you see that in verse 18. Paul says, for I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, whatever it is you're going through, whatever suffering you might be enduring, as horrific as it is, as painful as it is, as seemingly hopeless as it may be, Paul says there is a day coming that you can't even fathom that makes your present hardships not even worthy to be compared to the amazing glory that is waiting for you at the end of this. Peter said the same thing. Now, I want you to listen to this passage from Peter, 1 Peter chapter one. It is literally like he pulled directly from James chapter one and Romans chapter eight and puts them together. He says this, starting in verse six, Peter says, in this you rejoice. There's that attitude of joy. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. All that is James 1 language of what God is doing in the midst of our trials. Peter then says the whole point of that is that it may be found to result one day in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, he says, obtaining one day the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Peter says one day there is an inheritance that's coming that makes your current trials not even worth comparing to that. Same thing Paul says. Even John speaks into this. John, the apostle says in 1 John chapter 3, verse two, beloved, we are God's children right now. That is a fact. You are God's child right now. But he says, what will be has not yet appeared. There is still a day coming that we are waiting for. So don't think that where you're at right now in your hardships and your sufferings and your trials, don't think that is, that is the end. No, you're not home yet. There is still more to come. And both Peter and Paul and Jesus and John, they all say, we've seen it. It's assured, it's coming. So what is this glory that we're looking forward to? What is it about this future day that makes the painful reality of where we're at right now worth persevering through. Well, I want you to see this. We're gonna hold your place in Romans 8 and fast forward to the very end of the book. We're gonna go to Revelation 21 and then we'll come back to Romans 8. We're gonna fast forward the tape here just a little bit. But in Revelation 21, John, the apostle, is given a vision of how this whole thing's gonna play out in the end. Just like Martin Luther King Jr. when he did his mountaintop speech and he stood up there protesting against the unfair treatment and racism over the sanitation workers. No, no, I, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I know a future day that's coming that makes it worth what you're walking through right now because it's gonna get better. And in the same way, John is taken up and given a glimpse of heaven at the ultimate end, the ultimate end game of where we are headed. And this is what he sees. Listen to these words. In Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that's us, that's where we're at right now, has passed away. 
and the sea was no more. Some of you are like, no, I love the ocean. Understand in the Bible, the sea is always equated with chaos. Chaos is what's no more right now. And I saw the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's this beautiful picture to behold. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. No longer will you have to take God by faith. You will take him by sight. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And notice what he does in verse four. The first thing that we see God does in human interaction in heaven is this right here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where do tears come from? They come from suffering. He's wiping it away. And he says, death shall be no more. You will never attend a funeral again for the rest of eternity. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. How long? Anymore. For the former things have passed away. And in verse five, he, this is Jesus now, he who is seated on the throne, he says to John, Jesus says to John, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, John, because these, these are trustworthy and true words you're about to write down. And what are they? He says to me in verse six, it is done. When's the last time you heard those words? It was on the cross when Jesus was finally reconciling man who had been alienated from God, bringing him back together in relationship with God through his sacrifice on the cross, his shed blood on the cross that is making God and man reunited once again, reconciled through faith by God's grace and back to the Father. And he says, it is finished. No longer do you have to perform sacrificial religious works in order to earn the favor of God. Jesus is the final sacrifice. His work is all sufficient. His work has earned the favor of God for you and merited it to your account. This is the gospel and Jesus says it is finished. This work has been complete. And now at the end of time, we see these same words again by Christ. It is done. Only now it's not the reconciliation from death to life and, and from sin to nonsense. Now it is the physical presence of us with God, the pain and suffering that we've experienced in this lifetime. It has been done away with, it is over. And now a new day begins for the rest of eternity with God. And then what you'll see is verse seven, he simply says, the one who conquers, that's the, the you and I who persevere and endure through suffering. To the one who conquers, we will have that heritage. We will be with God face to face and I will be his God and he will be my son. That day is coming. And then what you see in verses nine all the way through verses 27 is, is John just keeps describing what he sees in this new Jerusalem. But notice down in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because God is our temple. In verse 23, there's no need of sun or moon anymore. Why? Because God is our light. And then he says in verse 25, and I love this, it's gates, the gates of the city will never be shut and there will be no more night there. In other words, man, 
You don't have to lock gates because there's no crime there anymore. ADT is gonna have to shut down business because they can't operate in heaven. There's no need for it anymore. All of a sudden it says, everything that's unclean, everything that's detestable, all wickedness is done away with. And then in chapter 22, keep reading for this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city also. And on either side of the river, notice what's there, the tree of life. Again, something else we haven't seen in a while. When did we last see the tree of life? It was in the garden, in the book of Genesis, when God created all these trees that man could eat from, don't eat from the one of the tree tree of knowledge of good and evil, but also here is the tree of life. And as long as you eat of this tree, you'll live forever. And that's why when man sinned, it was actually God's grace to remove man from the garden because it would be cruel for us to keep eating from the tree of life and live eternally in these corrupt fallen bodies and state. And so we remove from it. But now here at the end, the tree of life is reestablished and we can eat from it all that we want. And notice at the end of uh, verse two, what its leaves were for. They are for the healing of the nations. We eat of this tree and will be perfectly healed for the rest of eternity. No more suffering is to befall us. And no one else, not anything else will be a curse. There's no more judgment. We will see him face to face, verse four. And how long will we reign at the end of verse five? Forever and ever. This is the vision that John sees. And what is John's response in verse eight? Simply to fall on his face and worship. Y'all, this is our hope. This is the hope of the Christian, the hope of the believer. And it's the reason why churches all throughout early church history would read Revelation 21 and 22 in their gatherings as a reminder of what's coming that would fuel them to keep persevering in the midst of their horrific persecution. It's the reason why over 90% of hymnals include at least one stanza in each song that speak to the end of this day that we're looking forward to so that we would sing this hope over one another. So that in mind, go back to Romans 8 here. Go back to Romans 8. What, what, what uh, Paul is telling us here in verse 18 is that the sufferings of verse 17 aren't even worthy to be compared to that day that we just read about that's coming for us. And so in verse 19, he tells us that glory that we saw there is so fantastic that even the physical creation, think about the earth around you right now, is longing for that day that we just read about. Listen to this, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. This day is so wonderful that all of creation is looking forward to what Matthew 19 calls the regeneration of the earth. And this phrase here, waiting with eager longing, in the Greek, that term has a double prefix. It literally means this. It means to keep the head turned. That's what eagerly longing or eagerly waiting means, to keep the head turned. It's this idea. It's the idea that you are walking down a path and something so beautiful captivates your attention that your head turns And even while you're still walking in this direction, you can't stop looking at it because it's so captivating. That's what this idea means. This is is me on June 10th, 2000. Even though I'm standing there at the altar and all my groomsmen are messing with me and jacking with me, 
and trying to get me to laugh doesn't matter. I'm tuning out the whole world in this moment because my head is turned and it's fixed on that back door and I'm waiting for that door to open for my bride to come out. It is my kids every Monday through Friday at 3.29 p.m. Even right now, as they're on their computers, Zoom calling with their teachers, they're not paying attention to their teachers at 3.29. They're looking at the clock in the upper right-hand corner of the screen because they're waiting for 3.30. School's out, they're done, freedom. It's keeping that head turned. And in the same way right here, Paul says, that's how creation is. It's always looking to the Eastern sky, waiting for it to crack open and for its new day of freedom to come when all that is broken will be restored. It's ultimate day of redemption. And in verse 20, Paul explains, he said, here's why creation longs specifically for that day. And it's because of its current estate. In verse 20, Paul says, for the, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now think about when did that happen? Can you think of a time in your Bible when the creation was subjected to a futility? This is Genesis chapter three. When, when sin enters the world and we move from a day of bliss and a day of beauty into a day of death, and disease and decay and virus and pandemics and tornadoes and thorns and murder hornets, murder hornets. Have you heard of these things right now in the news? This is crazy. These things are ugly little demons that are infesting us now that have come over from Asia, these little bees that are killing people. I mean, why is this this way? Why is our earth like this way? It's because at some point in history, it was subjected to this futility when sin entered the world and God cursed the earth. You see this, Genesis 3.17 says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And Paul says, ever since that day, creation has been broken around us. His assumption here is that the creation that we experience today is not the creation that once was that it has been subjected to its current state of futility. But also here is the assumption that the creation that is right now is also not the creation that will one day be. Because notice at the end of verse 20, yes, it was subjected to futility, but notice it was also subjected to futility in hope. In hope of a future day, in hope of something so glorious. We see this in verse 21 in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right there in the midst of God cursing the earth, God puts a promise in Genesis 3.15 that says through the seed of the woman, there will come someone someday who will crush all of this evil, who will restore creation back to its original design, actually store it better than its original design. And it will happen when the appearing of Christ comes. And when he comes, that coming of Christ, that return of Christ, that advent of Christ is what the creation is longing for right now because it knows that's the day when the shackles will be loosened. And in fact, the word, the word set free there in the original language is the word for redemption. It's the idea to buy back and then to turn loose for the purpose of setting free. And that's what it's waiting for. It's hard to imagine that there's a day in the future 
when we can walk out into a Texas summer without needing 50 cans of off and 400 SPF. But there's a day coming when that will be the case. And so the creation longs for that day too. However, in verse 22, what is the creation doing in the meantime? We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just like a woman groans in childbirth, as painful and as uncomfortable as having a child is, so I've been told, she does so, she endures through that labor, through that pain in hope. Why? In hope of the new life that is gonna come from this labor. There is a pain and then there is a life at the end of it. And so Paul likens the earth situation right now to a woman in childbirth groaning in pain for that day to come. Only it's no nine months here. We're talking thousands of years. And notice Paul says in verse 23, not only does the creation groan in its sufferings and yet persevere in hope, so do we. This is where we're getting at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Y'all know what first fruits is? In Israel, the Feast of Firstfruits, this was, this was the Feast of Gathering. This was at the outset of the harvest when you would go out and you'd take the very first fruit that would come from the harvest, the very first sheath of grain, the very first ear of corn, and you would do a couple things with it. One, you would, you would thank God for it. You would thank God that he's the one that granted this grace that it would come and you're thanking him for providing it. But at the same time, secondly, you're also consecrating this first fruit, offering up it as a sacrificial thanksgiving, almost as a down payment to ensure and plead with God that more is to come after it. And that's why 50 days later, after first fruits, you would have Pentecost, which was the end gathering of the harvest, the, the completion of the rest of the crops that the first fruits represented. And so what's happening here, Jesus we know is called the first fruits of our salvation. He rose from the dead first and thus ensures that anyone who's in him will also rise one day as well. And so Jesus was our first fruits. And now Paul says, you and I have tasted of the first fruits of the spirit. We have received salvation. We've received regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, day by day sanctification. All this is a foretaste of what's to come. But ultimately, what the Spirit is for us is that He is a seal within us. He is a down payment, a guarantee that there is still more to come. And so it's the first fruits of the Spirit that we're tasting and that we're ultimately longing for still to be. But like the earth, what do we do in the meantime? See the very end of verse 23. We too groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So we groan as well. That word groan in the original language is the word stenazo. It's a musical term used to describe a low grade tension. It'd be like a bass chord, just kind of, mm, it's kind of like, almost like an onomatopoeia. It sounds like it is. And it's what you think it is. It's literally how we sound when we are sick and we are suffering and we've been beat upside the head with hardship. We've been pinned down by the weight of our trials. And what do we do? We, uh, we groan in the midst of our sufferings. And Paul says, having the first fruits of the spirit, we know one day 
We know one day there is a future glory that's coming for us. But in the meantime, in these bodies, we groan and we long for that day. Anybody wanna spend the rest of eternity in the body you're in? I don't wanna spend the rest of eternity in this body. I'm waiting for that day that 1 Corinthians 15 says, I'm gonna replace the perishable with the imperishable. That day is coming. But we wait for our adoptions as sons. Now, some would go, wait a minute, I thought I was already adopted. And yes, you are. In Christ, you have been legally adopted in your salvation. But at the same time that we are, we are told there's, there's more to come. The picture that Paul's using here is like a child in an orphanage. The papers have already been signed. The promise that a family has already uh, redeemed them and is coming to get them. So all they're doing now is waiting in their suffering for their new daddy to come and take them home. Like that's what's happened with us. The Holy Spirit is the signed document that we are adopted, we are his, but we are waiting for our day of redemption to come true. And so in verse 24, Paul says, this salvation that is an already, but it's a not yet, it involves something. And here's the key for us. It involves something called faith. A faith that what is promised is what will indeed happen. See this at the beginning of verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. In other words, from the moment you first put your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, this is what your eyes were set on, this future day when everything that is old will be made new, everything that is broken will be restored, everything that is suffered will be healed. This is our hope. And I want you to know something about biblical hope. Biblical hope is not the same as world hope. Worldly hope is like, man, I, I hope the Cowboys now have an incredibly stellar offense with their draft picks right now. I hope their defense does something better than what it did last year. I hope they even play this year. I hope COVID goes away. That's all biblical or that's all worldly hope. Uh, fingers crossed, hope it does. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Biblical hope is not like that. Biblical hope is not a fingers crossed. That's why we don't say good luck and keep my fingers crossed from you. Biblical hope is a guaranteed assurance of a reality that will come. It's just not here yet. It's this kind of hope that keeps us anchored in life's storms. It's this kind of hope that keeps us persevering and waiting and longing for what's to come. But notice you can't see it right now. Otherwise it wouldn't be hope, it would be reality. And that day is still to come, which is why Paul says this in verse 24, for no hope, now that hope is seen, if you could see your hope right now, then it wouldn't be hope. For who hopes in what he sees? In other words, the simple fact that it's hope means it's not here yet, but it is coming. And so in the meantime, what do we do? What will a Christian do in the midst of suffering while awaiting this hope to be realized. You see the end of verse 25, we'll close out here. But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. In other words, we persevere. We stay the course. We hold out in patience for the God who promised a day would come and we believe that it will. And so we keep moving forward. In our groaning, we hope but we keep that head turned, looking at the Eastern sky while we continue to move forward in our mission of making disciples and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ so others can experience this hope as well. So church, do you see why this text is here? 
It is a reminder that while you are going through immense suffering and trials on this earth, you hang in there. Why? Because you're not home yet. You, you haven't arrived at the end yet. That day is still coming. Uh, one man once told me one time, this life right now from eternity past, it's like a line from eternity past to eternity future is a line between the two. And your life and your sufferings are but a dot on that line. Don't live for the dot. Live in light of the, the line. Live in light of what is still to come in eternity future that is promised for you. You're almost there. Keep persevering. Keep holding on. Keep sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Northway Church, this is our hope. This is what anchors us and allows us to persevere. May we continue holding out the hope of Jesus Christ while enduring with steadfast hope in the midst of this trial, knowing our God has gotten us. He has not dropped the ball. And let's keep making much of the name of Jesus. Next week, we will look at our security in Christ, how in the midst of the worst trials that could possibly come, none of us can be lost in this we will for sure arrive at that destination. In the meantime, church, you know, I love you. Praying for you right now, praying that God would fill us with this kind of biblical hope that allows us to persevere, not only in this season, but whatever season may still lie ahead for us until he comes to get us or takes us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that you've given us in the midst of suffering. Thank you that on our worst days, when when the bottom falls out from underneath us, when the wheels fall off and we find ourselves in horrific ashes of pain, that we don't have to be left with despair and hopelessness. Thank you that we have been given a savior who already finished the first work of redeeming us and bringing us into your family and who promises to yet again finish the second work to eradicate the very presence of sin and suffering. In the meantime, Lord, would you allow us to persevere in that hope, keep pressing in, keep serving the needs of the community around us, keep living on mission, keep advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what sufferings may come, all the while fixing our eyes on that Eastern sky, knowing that that day is assured and will carry us through until then. We pray this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name, amen.